Welcome to the Farcast, kicking off our seventh season of giving you insight into Wall Street, Washington, and the world. And now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thanks so much for joining us again this week. It is November the 2nd, two months left to 2023. It always used to be a little bit traumatic uh, when I would have to figure out how I was going to change the year on my checks, uh, that I'd have to start writing 2024. And it was sometimes I'd get around to it usually by about March, um, about March was when I would do it. And now I talk to young folks in my office and my 30 year old children, and they look strangely, strangely at me when I suggest that you had need to learn how to write and change the date on a check because they don't write checks. I don't know if anybody writes checks anymore. Uh, these these are among the things that bother old people. You know, you have to, they don't just tell you that you get to be a curmudgeon. You really need the list of little petty things like the dates on a check uh, to really verify that you are indeed uh, an elderly curmudgeon. All right, folks, can you believe the difference that a week has made? Last week was doom and gloom. Stock prices were falling, indexes were falling. It was a bad month of October. November, on the other hand, is typically a very good month for stocks. December, positive month for stocks. We'll see if that holds out this year. Yesterday, uh, there was no news, and that made all the difference, right? Uh, if anybody was surprised at Jay Powell's uh, comments or that we didn't change anything, but we might, but we're probably not going to, that was what everybody was expecting. But Marcus somehow liked it. Uh, and they're off to the races. So all of the people last week who were desperate to sell seemed uh, this week uh, desperate to buy. Uh, they're going to buy again this morning. Futures are higher and things are going up. I want to ask our guests this morning about that. Uh, Jim Labenthal, we're going to start with from Serity Partners. And then Jeff Lacker, of course, um, Mahaffey's going to join us. But Jeff Lacker, former president of the Richmond Fed, you saw him on CNBC yesterday uh, giving the pre uh, analysis of what Powell might say and his thoughts. He continues to be hawkish. He continues to think that the Fed is missing an opportunity and ought to be more strident in their raising of rates. We shall see. He doesn't believe that inflation is being tamed. He thinks that this, from what I heard him say yesterday, he thinks that this is a, 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 a yes, a softening, but not a well-established trend, and there are a lot of factors not being considered, and he thinks the Fed needs to be more vigilant. We're going to ask him about it uh, in segment three. Very interesting. Lacker's a very smart man. Um, and one of the things that Lacker's really learned how to do over the past five years, I've known, I've known Jeff for 15 years, um, gotten to know him pretty well, but one of the things he's gotten really good at is speaking English. And he didn't start out that way. This is one of these you know, egghead economist guys. He's just so damn smart. And he's really learned how to get it simple enough so I can understand it. I, I, uh, I'm sure that will make it easy for the rest of you. But why do stocks change so quickly? Why does pricing change so quickly? How does the price of oil change uh, 6% in a week's time? How does the price of a global commodity change 6 or 7% in a week? One week? It's worth more and one week it's worth less because the amount of oil changed, because the conditions, because, because, come on. But this happens all the time in the markets. So we have to look at the long term and we have to look at fundamentals and we have to have a discipline. And the discipline is what gets you through these emotional times. As a final quick footnote, uh, the IRS and, and the government uh, have changed the 
IRA and retirement laws, they've increased the limits. So you're going to be able to contribute a little bit more to your IRA. You're going to be able to have a little bit bigger. Uh, you're going to be able to uh, uh, contribute a little more to your 401k. Uh, these things, I think, will all be good. Make sure you do it. Please make sure you do it. Max out those retirement contributions whenever you can. Jim Labenthal from Saturday Partners, you've listened to me drone on and on coming into the last two months of the year. Where would you like to start? And I want to also talk about world events before we get out of here. Okay, great, great intro, Michael, and great to see you as always. And the reason I say great intro is because you gave us a lot to think about there. And I was kind of like reading a menu. Where do I want to go with Michael on the <laughs> list of topics that he uh, just listed? Folks, I'll tell you exactly where I want to go. It's what he was saying about Jeff Lacker and inflation. So I'm going to come back and listen to Professor Lacker because inflation for me is still the most important factor. Here's why. Uh, by really any measure, this economy is strong. Now, I know if I point out 4.9% third quarter GDP, anybody is going to reasonably say, yeah, but that was the third quarter. We're in the fourth quarter. What's going on now? Um, and things are, of course, slowing down. Can't stay at 4.9%. But folks, the labor market maintains its strength. And you just need to look at initial, initial weekly jobless claims to see that. Um, you know, some people will point out, hey, there's some welts along the way. Certainly yesterday's, yesterday's ISM manufacturing survey went the wrong way. Uh, it's not perfect, but it is clear to me, looking at industrial production, retail sales, durable goods, that this economy is still expanding nicely. So why does everybody feel lousy? Seriously, why do, why do consumers feel lousy? Why do investors feel lousy? Why do portfolio managers feel lousy? And, and let me inter I'm going to interrupt just very quickly, because ladies and gentlemen, this is a hugely important point. This point that Jim's making about how investors feel, data be damned, is hugely important. They And the Fed pays attention to it, right? Consumer sentiment will determine whether they spend their money or whether they don't spend their money, whether they save their money, whether they're getting ready for a rainy day or a sunny day. And if they feel bad, they keep their money in their pockets and they watch. I'm sorry, Jim, go ahead. No, but very well put, very well put. So in my opinion, what's driving this terrible sentiment is inflation and is interest rates. If you have credit card debt, if you're going to buy an auto because the average age of autos on the road is 12 and a half years and yours is falling apart, folks, I get it. And you go to the dealer and you go to buy a car and they show you an interest rate that on a good day is 9%, okay? You're a little freaked out. And people have now grown accustomed to something that two years ago would have been unthinkable, which is four-digit uh, monthly auto payments. Folks, I get it. There's a reason we feel lousy. It's inflation and, by extension, interest rates. This is why Professor Lacker uh, is going to be must-watch or must-listen-to podcast fodder here, because I want to hear why he is not as enthusiastic on inflation as I am. And I will quote uh, Michael, our mutual friend, uh, Ed Yardeni, who, who's a very yes. good macroeconomist, very good. And he has pointed out that if you strip out shelter from the CPI, both the headline and the core drop to 2%, which is where the Fed wants it. Now, why, why does that matter to strip out uh, headline and, or excuse me, to strip out in, uh, rent and shelter? Because it's notoriously lagging is why. And if you look at Zillow or any other market-based rent, it would tell you uh, shelter costs are plummeting. So where I get to with this, here's the punchline. When the market and the public feel that the Fed is truly done raising rates, I think the mood's going to change a little bit. Uh, we're going to feel that interest rates have topped out. Now, this is only going to happen if inflation continues to come down. But I think those two things, inflation and interest rates, are what are making fee people feel terrible, despite 
a great economy. And despite third quarter earnings, Michael, and I know we're looking in the rearview mirror, but third quarter earnings have come in 3.4% better than expected at the start of the reporting season. So why are we so miserable? I think that's the answer. I think consumers are still running out of the pocketbook is what I'm reading, right? Is what I'm reading about the consumers. Target had a report this morning. Consumers are having trouble paying their bills. Uh, these um, uh, buy now or borrow now and pay later uh, kind of websites that are offering new accounts today and you can borrow money for six months without making a payment. People are borrowing money to do this, to buy things like groceries. So it, it's that uh, that there's, we still have a bit of a haves and haves nots in the economy and inflation has kept up with a lot of the, or can was I it- Can I jump in on Head of the, jump head of the on wage this? gains, yes. Apologies for interrupting you, but I just Not think it's so important. We're about to, as you pointed out, turn to uh, a new calendar year. Well, two months away, but who's counting? Uh, that calendar year includes a very important election. And do we really think, it's a rhetorical question, but I'd like a literal answer from you, Michael. Do we really think the Fed is going to push the have-nots into unemployment, um, who have weathered inflation for the last two years, now to see it come, you know, now to see it come down to a stable level? Is he really going to push those those poor people? I mean, my heart breaks for them um, who have been struggling to make ends meet, to push them into uh, unemployment right now. There's something perverted about that. I almost said perverse, but it's perverted. I, I don't think they're going to do it. I just it's it's wrong. It's wrong on every level. Um, you know, the, it's a very interesting point because the Fed has a dual mandate, right? The Fed's dual mandate is price stability and full employment. However, one can often be in conflict with the other uh, economically. Full employment can erode price stability. Now, don't don't turn off your podcast now. I'm not going to go. I'm not going to get too wonky here. But if you have full employment and wages go up, right? Everybody's employed. You need to hire. You've got to pay a little bit more. And we're seeing these wage increases from all of the unions and automakers, of course. But you're also seeing them in McDonald's and Walmart, and they've got to pay workers more. Have you seen the signs as you drive bought a fast food uh, Burger King restaurant that says we pay $17 an hour to start? We've got this and that. They need employees. So when those prices go up, those people spend more and they fuel inflation. So uh, it's it's actually something that the Fed on paper would like to see would be perhaps a 4% unemployment rate uh, up from that three and a half. And then maybe you don't get quite the same wage inflation pressure, Jim. I, I'm, I would never disagree with the human element of that because I, 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 I too have a heart. But But on paper, how do they... And how do they stop that spiral? Because if the spiral of the wages go up and then the prices go up, the people employed aren't any better off. Let me take a step down from my soapbox. Just one step. I'm still going to moralize here. Um, <laughs> the unemployment rate going up can happen in a benign way by people returning to the labor force and being added to the numbers of those who are looking for jobs. That would be benign as opposed to people uh, losing their jobs and being added uh, to the number of people who are looking for jobs. That is why, that's what we should be hoping for. 
And that is why this Friday's labor report is very important. I don't care what the headline number is, and none of us should. We should actually kind of hope that it's positive. Like the people who are asking for for uh, uh, job losses so the Fed will back off are missing what the, the main details are here. The main details are labor force participation rate, are people coming back into the workforce, and average hourly earnings. Um, and, and those average hourly earnings, which have been around four-ish percent uh, year-over-year uh, wage gains for the last several reports, can be maintained if you get productivity increasing, which it looks like it has been and will be, albeit from low bases, but it does look like productivity is increasing. So that's what that's what I want to look for on Friday's labor report. Now, Michael, will you indulge me for a moment if I do a segue without your permission, but to an area that you wanted to come back to, which is geopolitics. May I go there? Let, give, give, give me one second uh, on the productivity just to throw in here. When Jim talks about productivity, um, it, it's really important. When I hear productivity, the first thing I do just, you know, as a, as, as a knee-jerk uh, reflex is to think about GDP growth in general because GDP growth is measured by a growth in the number of workers, number of employees, number of, plus the productivity. And with AI and with these other things, productivity can increase. We don't have population growth and we're not having an expansion of the workforce at all, which is one of the reasons I've called for immigration for so long, but we might be seeing an increase in productivity here that goes far beyond what the two hands of every worker can actually produce. That's a good thing. That's a really good thing for the U.S. economy. Sorry to sorry to interrupt. I want to hear world events, and then we got to go. Okay, I'll make this quick. And I, I'm going to stay away from being a geopolitical expert or a military expert. Yes, I have some military experience, but folks, it was 30 years ago. And the, the light year changes that have been made in training, personnel, tactics, uh, equipment, it, it makes me a novice again in terms of military uh, information. But what I will say is listening to companies report. There has been a marked number of companies this reporting season that have cited the ongoing uh, saga in the Middle East as a concern, as a source of volatility in their business. Now, I want to point out that when I say a source of volatility, they're talking about in the future, like something that they're looking for. This has definitely, in my opinion, weighed on the markets during the month of October. It's what has, in my opinion, extended a seasonally soft period of August and September through October to the extent that the Middle East situation does not get worse, meaning to the extent that Iran and the U.S. do not engage in direct military conflict. That perceived volatility, that expected volatility that CEOs are talking about may not come to pass. And that would be another amelioration of the lousy mood that many of us feel. So let's just see, again, not an expert, I don't know what's going to happen there, uh, but let's just see how that unfolds. And if things calm down, uh, I think we have a, 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 better, a better future in the markets than people are anticipating. Jim Laventhal is a partner at Sarity Partners, CNBC contributor, a sometimes farcast guest host, and my great friend, Jim, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure, Michael. Great discussion today. Thank you. Uh, I always learn when I talk to you. I really do. It gives me new things to think about. Dan Mahaffey is coming up next. Please stay with us. Thank you for joining us this week on The Farcast. Now it's time for political analyst Dan Mahaffey and your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back. Joining me now, as he does every week for seven years, can you believe it, ladies and gentlemen, the great 
They're brilliant. The better than average looking Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress, our senior political analyst on the Farcast. Welcome back, Dan. Thank you. A uh, a Washington six, a Chicago eight, and a South Bend ten. I'm told. There, there we go. Uh, I I probably shouldn't say it, but my favorite was a uh, Nome, Alaska two a.m. ten. Uh, yeah, I like. I like I, uh, well, I hope whatever the, the sled dogs got you the diphtheria serum in time. If you're uh, if you're I, up I that think late, the sled dog is at least a twelve. So you okay, can... we've we've gone way off the way off the uh, tracks here. <laughs> uh, all right, Dan, we're moving along in Washington. The new Speaker of the House seems to have the same challenges as the last Speaker of the House. Can't get the votes together. Even though he's a right-wing guy, he is still up against an even more right-wing group who want to cause him trouble. Uh, we've got a um, budget deadline coming up on the 17th of this month. That's in two weeks, mm -hmm. 15 days, 15 days from today. Today days, is folks, November yep. 2nd, right? What happens there? What are his challenges? There was mm -hmm. a uh, failed vote to oust uh, George Santos yesterday. I read... Uh, a pretty good article, I thought, yesterday morning arguing as to why it was premature to oust Representative Santos in that he has still not yet been afforded due process. As much evidence as there is, he still has not gone through those trials. He has not been found guilty of these things in spite of... So, once yeah, see, look, even if, you, even if you're a slimeball, we agree in this system, you should be afforded the rights of a, yeah. a jury of your peers to determine that you're a slime ball. Yeah, we want the final yeah, that's that that's right. I guess I'd 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 want it for myself. Look, I won't I won't hang too much on that. And we want, you know, that's the that's what sets our system above all others. So I'm not I'm not too about that. I think what you see though with the as we're 15 days out and the uh deadline approaching and and I think look the simplest thing let's take the Israel aid package. Now uh yes that has been controversially now tied to the uh, a proposal to cut IRS funding in order to pay for that. Look, there's a logic I get to pay as you go. And I think in that way too, the speaker is signaling two things. One, to the Senate and administration, I need some kind of deal here. You've got to give me something to get a bigger package uh, across the finish line. And, and we'll circle back to that. But the other part is, he didn't have 217 votes for just a clean Israel aid package. And that tells you something about how precarious that caucus still is. You think, and and Michael, I hope uh, this logic is, is followable. If you could get a clean Israel aid package, it would be very hard for any Democrat to vote against that. And you could effectively jam the Senate with that and set aside the Ukraine, the other issues that are, are there. So he didn't have the votes to get that clean package. That's why he had to do that IRS pay for there to, to take something also that, that's controversial and attach it to it. So that being unable to get something as simple as the, the IRS, sorry, the Israel aid package without any riders or attachments makes it really hard for me to predict that he's going to have any uh, easy time getting a, a CR package through with just Republican votes. I, I, I completely agree with that, but let me offer just one cynical Washington opinion uh, that from from that is completely founded on 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 a uh, years and years of of 
ignorance when it comes to these things. I want to just disclaim. But it would also seem to me, as I talk to these members of Congress, that they have a feeling, they have a sense that this Israel package is going to get done, that this is something that will get passed, and they just can't vote on it without their trinkets. If they can't add their their thing, well, that, to that, them... Michael, that you're you're right there, and that that's point one, which is correct. And I think that was the first point I made, though, is that they, he is saying that you've got to give me something on this. And I think that's where where I said we would circle back. And ultimately, I think the deal, as we say, comes out of the Senate. And I think it's something on the border. That's that's my gut feeling is where something can be done on border policies and border resources. But that's the that's again, that's where the deal needs to be made. And the speaker is trying to say, look, I, I need something that is a, a deal here. This is not I can't get anything clean through the through my caucus. Isn't right that now. remarkable statement. I mean, just are you listening to yourself? I can't get anything clean through. Really? Come on. What are you people doing? I don't know. I just get so sick of all of them. But they can't get anything clean. But again, this is back to, you know, pre-election, you know, where I was saying, look, if you even don't care about the party and you just care about getting things done, this is why you want 30, 40 seat majorities, not five to to two seat majorities. This is the it's just well, they get the CR done. Will they get a CR? I think he has to do it again the same way that McCarthy did. And I, I keep looking at this as Does he lose a, his job over that? I think this is the question. It's a, I'm wondering if this baseball analogy holds. Look, McCarthy, the first strike for the right was that McCarthy got elected. They didn't like him. The second strike was the debt ceiling deal. And then the third strike was when he kept government open. He's out. The question is, does Johnson come yeah, to the did, speakership? Does he get the gavel with a clean count? And I think he can because before the we at least get a CR can. of some kind because he's got a clean count. They'll give him one strike. And he was even open about putting forward some kind of CR before he was elected. His memo, his letter to his colleagues that came out said, look, we do have to push through January or April to keep government open. One, because they acknowledge the difficulty of keeping government open. And two, he says, we don't want to be jammed by a Senate omnibus before Christmas, which is Ladies the other fear among you, conservatives. Do you realize that all we're talking about is kicking the can down the road? All of this nonsense and shenanigans, sorry for the strong language, uh, is about just kicking it down the road another six weeks, six, three months, something like that. They're still not getting close to an actual funding yes, it's, or a it's, budget it's like or anything House like of that. Cards, but the music's the Yakety Sack song in the background. It, 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 it's just it's just ridiculous. Um, uh, Dan, and I don't know if, if um, Labenthal is still, uh, I see him still on, so just if he wants to weigh in, because I'm going to do this with Lacquer too, but... Um, Janet Yellen was out there yesterday, too, and she's talking about the debt and the debt refunding. And some of these numbers are pretty big. Uh, she uh, announced that she needed to sell one hundred and twelve billion dollars worth of treasuries across the curve next week. And then another six hundred and eighty billion over the next couple of months. Uh, uh, 814 billion in the first quarter of 2024. That's up four and a half percent in funding from this quarter to the next. There's a lot of treasury supply coming. And if you remember, of course, folks, in the supply and demand, when you have a lot of supply, more supply than demand, prices go up. So there's there are causes they're going to keep these interest rates up, might keep the Fed on the sidelines. Here comes my question, Dan. 
Jim Labenthal earlier was talking about the political side of the Federal Reserve's position when it comes to unemployment, that they really, if they see unemployment go up, if they take those steps that will increase unemployment, there will be real suffering. And there is a real political part to the Federal Reserve. So with all of this funding, with all of the debt, how political does the Fed become? Mm -hmm. And Janet Yellen is not getting good marks. So Dan, and I see Jim back. Mm -hmm. I'd love your comments here. Well, look, I think the Fed tries to stay out of stuff in an election year. They're going to want to avoid, look, they'll let markets. Usually they'll say, say something the first six months and after about, you know, May. They yeah, that's up. traditionally historically they're they're quiet in election years. I don't think they um, want to be seen as the impetus for any president winning or losing, particularly in this uh, politicized and polarized of, of a time. Uh, that said, though, the the. White House, I think there is some overconfidence on their economic record. They continue to believe that these uh, programs and their impact will sell themselves when we see uh, in the poll numbers that they're not. I think there's an underestimation of how much uh, inflation has hit their base, particularly uh, people of color, uh, less fortunate folks. They're the ones who are hit hardest by inflation. Um, so that I think there's a there's a sense of perhaps an over overconfidence in this economic picture, as well as a, a question of if there is a cliff or wall or whatever metaphor you want to use that we're about to hit or go off of. And we've had these headlines for for months that there's a, a recession around the corner, uh, the job market's about to crash. And then guess what? The economy goes up and there's more job openings. Um Look, wherever this landing or hit comes and this this positive picture, they're hoping that just keeps going, that this kind of has, you know, can get through to 2025 somehow. Um, but ultimately, I, I don't see the Fed trying to interfere with that. Um, and also policymakers realizing some of these things are out of control. That said, though, the, the debt and deficit issue is really resonating with folks outside the Beltway. Look, the, you know, the sense of these numbers being too big to comprehend, well, they're big enough to frighten. Um, and I think uh, people, people see that. People see line. that. And when you see these stories of, you know, OK, like I saw the headline where it's, well, maybe the federal government's not borrowing as much yeah. as it needs. Uh, the public doesn't really see that as a positive story. Uh, I'm drowning in eight feet of water is not an advance over I'm drowning in 12 feet of water. I saw Jim Labenthal smile exactly when I did. Uh, it was a it's a it's a great comment you just made. Jim, you want to weigh in quickly on this debt because I think this the the amount of debt issuance ahead of us, not to mention the Fed's still sizable portfolio been coming down. It's another advantage. I mean, keeps the can keep the Fed on the sidelines a lot longer. Excellent commentary, Dan. Um, from a yeah. stock participants point of view, stock market participants point of view. I don't think it's the level of the 10-year yield that has been vexing the market recently. I think it's the flow of funds into treasury bonds, these auctions, you know, these these announced uh, refundings that are coming up at a time when the Fed has said, we're out, we're not buying anymore. Okay. So it's not the level of interest rates. It's the flow of funds, the cash that needs to come in to buy these bonds, the deficit, which is leading to more and more of these 
bonds and bills takes money out of the stock market. So I would, as a stock market participant, very much like to see some fiscal uh, rationality occur, some recognition that we're not in a good position. We got to dial down the spending. Now, that's that's your world, not mine. Okay, I'm outside the beltway and I'm hoping that Congress, you know, kind of realizes we can't continue as we've as we've been going um, from a from a more within my world point of view. This still comes down to inflation. And you pointed out very rightfully who this falls upon inflation. It falls upon the people who can least afford it. And oh, if you were listening to me earlier, the people who are most likely to lose their jobs if the Fed continues to raise interest rates. It's a paradox, it's a perversion that I just don't think the Fed can allow to occur. Now, the Fed is independent of politics, but as Michael, you said, they are aware. They've gotta be aware. And the political pressure's been increasing on them. And I think that's very dangerous, by the way, the political pressure on the Fed, very dangerous. I don't think they'll cave to political pressure. I don't think we're gonna turn into Turkey overnight, uh, the country, not the foul. Um, But I do think they're gonna be aware over the next six months that there's an election coming, people out of work is not a good idea. And that, oh, by the way, we're having an impact on the uh, debt service cost for this nation. Um, all right, I'll leave it at there. But I, I you know, all of, the, all of these forces are coming together. And really, inflation is where this comes home to roost, in my opinion. We're going to come back to this with Jeff Lacker, of course, all of it when he comes up in our next segment. Dan, uh, come back to me, please, with uh, Israel and Palestine and what's going on in the tragic circumstances uh, mm-hmm. in the Middle East. How volatile, how does it grow, how does it expand? Uh, I see refugees made it to Egypt, some. Yeah. Uh, good news. Um, tell us what you think. The volatility of this is, as as I pointed out in past episodes, the anger of Israel towards the situation, and, and rightly so, considering some of the barbarism. Uh, that righteous anger has resulted, though, in a, in a military campaign that uh, really is extremely destructive in scope. And while you can say that the Israeli forces are are prosecuting this campaign. Um, look, there are those in the U.S. who would distance themselves from how it's being carried out in terms of the use of artillery and air power in very close uh, civilian quarters. That said, uh, this is a urban combat, perhaps unparalleled uh, in history, maybe not since Stalingrad. So uh, it is just a, a truly tragic circumstance, as you point out. Um, and one, I think, where you're going to see a long urban conflict uh, as one Israel tries to use a large conscript army to secure a warren of tunnels and, and urban ruins, uh, as well as you see Hamas using, and I would say these videos are nearly indistinguishable from what you see on the battlefield of Ukraine, Hamas using drones technology in ways that you have not seen an, an insurgent or a terrorist force use in, in some time. Yeah. Um, does does this aggressive military action from Israel continue? Uh, does it get slowed down? I'm, I'm, I'm watching the politics of this conflict um, sure. I think, uh, yeah, I are... think you see the, the U.S. government, one, in, increasingly calling for some kind of uh, at least a humanitarian pause to let aid through refugees and the wounded out. Um, at the same time, there's also the broader political sense, and rightly or wrongly, most of the sympathy across the, the world, and largely the global south, uh, is with the Palestinians, and therefore the 
the West, Europe, the United States, and others are increasingly being accused of, of hypocrisy on, on Ukraine when you see what's going on in Gaza. I've written a uh, op-ed this week uh, the, and our market commentary this week on trying to find the truth. Ignorance is a horrible problem where hate finds its home, ladies and gentlemen, and it breaks my heart and makes me embarrassed and ashamed uh, just to be human a lot of the time when I see the violence and barbarism that's able, that of, of which we're capable as human beings. So anyway, it's 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 horrible, but know that there are salesmen out there without a moral compass. Uh, and if they figure out that something's going to serve their advantage, they'll sell it. So careful out there. We're going to be back with Dr. Jeff Lacker. Dan, thank you so much for being with us. We'll be right you, back Michael. on the Farcast. Michael Farr and the Farcast are proud to support Heroes, Inc., Heroes supports the spouses and children of law enforcement officers and firefighters who gave their lives in the line of duty to the greater Washington, D.C. community. Their singular goal is to honor the supreme sacrifice made by these individuals by caring for their families. Heroes' work begins within 24 hours of the tragic loss and continues indefinitely. We invite you to learn more about Heroes' mission at heroes.org. We hope that you will consider supporting heroes as they endeavor to honor those who protect us. That's heroes.org. Heroes, here for you, here for good. And now, back to the Farcast and your host, Michael Farr. We appreciate you listening into the podcast this week. And now to introduce this week's special guest, here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. It's November the 2nd. The Fed announced yesterday that they would leave rates unchanged, that they're not sure that they're at the right level yet. They're not sure that monetary policy is sufficiently restrictive yet to ultimately tame inflation, but for the time being. They're going to sit on their hands. That's exactly what the markets expected them to say. And yet, yet the markets rallied, went straight up. All of those people desperate to sell last week and drove stock prices lower are seemingly desperate to buy this week. And they're buoyed by some decent earnings, as Jim Labenthal was telling us in the, in the first segment, beating expectations. There's some good news out there, not to mention GDP growth, positive, positive even net of inflation. It's a real number that's positive. Jeff Lacker was on CNBC yesterday morning offering a more cautionary, hawkish tone. He thought they what we should hear should be more hawkish than what he thought we were, were going to hear. And in fact, I think he probably still feels that way. But Dr. Jeffrey Lacker was president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond, Virginia, a professor of economics at several amazingly brilliant institutions. And he's amazingly brilliant and a wonderful friend of mine now for many years. You know, Jeff, 15 Years ago, you and I were in Israel together. Two thousand eight, fifteen years. That's right. Uh, Jeff, what did you make uh, shifting to the Fed here? Mm -hmm. uh, what did you make? Uh, it was an excellent appearance on CNBC yesterday. By the way, well, thank you. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. you, you, you're. Um, it, it really is uh, ruining your academic creds that you're getting to be such a good talking head. Really, you know. Yeah, the key is not preparing. That's the. That's the <laughs> It's worked for Labenthal and me for years. So uh, t t tell us what you think. What's going on? So he, uh, you know, I 
read the statement and and watched the press conference and he really doesn't want to raise rates um but they they don't feel like they can admit that out loud they don't feel like they can say it out loud so they kept a rate increase on the table uh, but it's it's like the fomc sitting at one end of one of those gigantic medieval banquet hall tables like in hogwarts or something that seats 80 you know yes and they, they've moved rate cuts from the end they're sitting at all the way to the other end you know it's about 40 yards away down the down the banquet hall um so it's on the table you know technically speaking but you know it's always a possibility but they're not you know they're not they don't want to admit they're done but he, he came up he came as close uh, to saying that as as he possibly could you know he said risks are more balanced um, he basically threw the September forecast that they issued uh, in which like more a majority said that there'd be another rate increase that, that this year basically threw that under the bus and saying it had decayed um, and so I, I he gave every signal um, he could that they're, they're basically done for now. But I, you know, I, as I said on the um, program yesterday, I think it's a mistake. You know, you have to distinguish carefully between what they're gonna do and what they ought to do. Um, and uh, I tried to do that yesterday. I, I, I really think they're gonna find they need to raise rates again next year um, and and resume a, a campaign. I, or, Tell us or, why. Tell us why. Well, so, you know, they've gotten a lot of mileage out of a couple of things. Um, the, the inflation rate is measured by a 12 month percent change has come down a lot in the last six months. So there's two things. They got two good inflation numbers over the summer, June and July. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of that was used cars and airlines fees and stuff. But then the other thing is that a bunch of big increases last year in the middle of the year are rolling off. And so what you're seeing is a you know the emergence of a new trend if you look at just the month over month numbers the trend over the last six to eight months isn't really well defined i mean it's not a real clear downward path the last two months have been not so favorable august and september have been pretty strong core inflation numbers you know above three and so they um you know they're they're counting on this 12 month number having come down well it's not clear how much momentum there is, how much more disinflation momentum there is. It, it, it just isn't clear at all. And it looks like inflation settling in somewhere between three and 4%. My friend, uh, Jim like Labenthal the in, the, in the first, uh, Jim Labenthal in the first segment said, if you remove shelter costs, we're really at about 2%. And that's such a lagging number that it's not going to be driving things forward. What do you think about that? Well, it's a real call. I mean, it's a real thing people pay for. And, Besides, the Fed didn't say it's targeting inflation X housing. It said it's targeting inflation. So they've got a, you know, they're going to have a credibility problem the longer it goes on at three. The other thing uh, Labenthal said <laughs> was if they continue to increase rates, they're going to cause this spike in unemployment. And we have so many in this country suffering and so many people losing jobs that there's a there's a still a tragedy among the most vulnerable that continues to unfold. Will the Fed sit at the table and allow that to happen, given, uh, you know, the fact Jim Jim said, given their moral conscience, because he has one. I, of course, you know, am questionable. And I suggested, you know, that it's they, they are being so politicized and criticized for everything they do. Can they afford to do it? 
Uh, if you go back to the beginning of the year, the outlook was that there's a you know a big recession, the sizable risk of recession, and uh, spike in unemployment. And I I think that's when and why they set course by decelerating the rate of increases, um, stretching it out to every other month, every other meeting rather. And now they're like now they've skipped two. I think they decided six months or more ago. Like, yeah, they were going to top her out around five and a quarter, five and a half. But since then. Uh, real economic activity has been stronger than expected, significantly stronger than expected. The job market is tighter than they thought it would be. They thought it would be loosening up. It hasn't loosened up as much as they thought. And if if you look at this in terms of two risks, you got inflation. You know, they're a long way away from two percent, and it's not. And, and on the real side, you've got a fairly strong economy, stronger than expected. I mean, they're definitely at maximum employment or above. So it looks at, to me as if in terms of balancing the, the risks of the two sides of the mandate, it's a kind of way they like to frame things sometimes. They're fine on the employment side, uh, overperforming in, in, in some sense. And in, on inflation, they're not there yet. So why not take on more risk in order to do more, um, you know, do more good, in terms of reducing inflation. That's kind of my perspective right now. That was the argument actually I made back to, to Jim was uh, the higher prices, if they're not taming inflation, can do as much harm to those most vulnerable as can the loss of jobs. And it is that balance and then it becomes politicized. So we'll, we'll, we'll watch that. But of course, um, uh, I, I, as I, I've said for years on the Farcast, listen to Labenthal, listen, listen to Labenthal. Uh, he, he pays attention to this stuff. Uh, Jeff, um, would you do something different were you on the Fed right now? I mean, I, I don't, I, I hear you saying you think they might have to do more later, but do you think it's a mistake to watch now? I don't. So where they are now is kind of the consequence of a bunch of communication steps they've taken over the last uh, six months. I wouldn't have... Um, tapered off i would have headed towards six or six and a half by now um, yeah and i i think i think you know financial markets could withstand it and i i think they'd be better positioned i think growth would be a little bit maybe a little bit lower in the next half year and um they'd make more progress on inflation here we are um, so at five I, and a quarter would you would you sit on your hands now too your fed chairman no. Jay Powell, get rid of him. would you sit on your hands right now no once? No, no, I'd, not. I'd okay. signal another, you know, starting now, you put me in the position now, I'd start signaling about an increase in December um, and uh, leave the door open and uh, get people focused on, um, you know, the, the inflation numbers as they come in and respond to them. I mean, in some sense, the Fed's here at five and a quarter and five and a half, which is where they said they were going to end up um, six months yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah. And, but yet the data's come in different than they expected. And so they, it doesn't seem like they're as data dependent as you know they, they, they say. Do I need to worry about all of this debt? Janet Yellen and her 112 billion yesterday, which was down from 114 billion, yippee Janet. Uh, uh, but uh, 680 billion to follow over the next two months and 814 billion in the first quarter and the deficits are still rising. And I've got Five percent interest rates out there at the cost of this new debt, and we're not seeing uh, much uh, uh, a, a huge appetite 
for a lot of these auctions, and certainly the Fed's no longer a buyer. They've been a net seller here lately. Do I worry about it? And what do I think about the Fed as a net seller? And is Janet Yellen and all of this supply with the fiscal side of the house going to do the Fed's job for them? That's a really good question. Wow. Well, hey, Harry, I got one today. One. Put me down. Really good question. Yeah. I wish I wish we'd gotten to that yesterday on CNBC. I was surprised a couple of weeks ago when a bunch of uh, Fed officials started saying that the long bond, the increase in the long bond yield was going to do their work for them. I mean, that's 180 degrees from how the Fed has historically responded to increases in long bond yields. Historically, it's it's one of two things, both of which mean higher Fed funds rates. One is inflation expectations are rising. Arguably, that's probably not going on now. The second one is the deficit is driving up real interest rates. Uh, the Fed likes to talk about R star, the neutral interest rate. Well, that neutral interest rate varies over time. And when you have a government that's spending more and not taking it out in tax revenues, that's pre- placing a um, that's increasing the demand for current resources. Yes. And the way to get people, the way to make room in the economy for the resources they want is to get people to delay spending on other stuff. And the way to do that is to raise real interest rates. And that's the reason why real interest rates have to go up when the government runs a bigger deficit. And that's why it puts upward pressure on interest rates. And, and the Fed has to track that. If it doesn't track that, if it doesn't follow the long bond up, it's making policy more stimulative, in a sense. Say so, that again. No, whoa, 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 whoa. So if if the neutral rate goes on, up- Hang on, hang on, hang on. I just want to get, if it doesn't track the long bond up, meaning if it doesn't raise these lower end interest rates to keep the curve not quite so steep, right. meaning short rates too different from long rates, that's being stimulative. Yeah, Why and policy. how does how is that stimulative? Well, Give me so the moron's explanation. Remember, I'm a moron. Okay, so there's a rate that's neutral. Yes, a rate that in and it's a what does that mean? A, neutral. Well, rate. it means it's neither stimulative nor contractionary, and that's the benchmark that we're comparing the current Fed funds rate to. And is that the goal for the Fed? That neutral rate? Um, well, it's it's to bring inflation down and employment up so that it can bring rates back down to neutral. It's a rate it has to track in the long run. I mean, it's going to be forced to. Okay. So um, the policy rates, five and a half, five and a quarter now, right? Um, So if the neutral rate rises, five and a quarter is now not as high relative to the neutral rate. Okay. So it's policies become less tight than it used to be. With inflation coming down, the real rate has been going up. And there has been an argument that with inflation coming down, that rate staying tight, the real rate's been going up. And therefore, markets and the trend that, that, that perhaps these rate hikes have done their job, they have curtailed demand such that those that inflation's coming down and then rates are more appropriate at these levels. That's a, that's been a big argument out there. Sure has been. But if you, if you look at the real federal fund rate um, and you compare it in this recovery and you compare it to the real federal funds rate in the time period from the early eighties to the mid two thousands, when the fed was doing a pretty good job of controlling inflation and keeping it under control, um, the, the real Fed funds rate now is two. 
percent maybe. Okay. Um, in all the other re recoveries, the real Fed funds rate was four, five, or seven and a half. Okay, so now I'm 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 hearing, and I can't think of the data, and I sure as hell don't have it, but I can hear uh, uh, Jeff Gunlock saying, "Oh, but this time it's different." Could be. <laughs> you know, pick your poison, take your you know, put your money down, take your chances. But that's just a measure. Of, I mean, it's a, it's one indicator among others that, yeah, this this funds rate isn't quite high enough to do the job of bringing inflation all the way down to two percent that's that's how i read this evidence. okay between now and next <clears throat> june give us a percentage chance the fed will have to raise rates again oh um well so there's so have to is a strong word you know strong okay. phrase how about will um, they will they can always rates? will raise rates um that's better. I'd, I'd say 50. I'd 50, say 50. at least 50 that they will raise rates. Okay. So he asked me a question like, sh what are the odds that they should raise rates between now and then? And I, you know, I, I think that's pretty high, like 90%. So okay. um, I, I think I think inflation is going to muddle along at 3% or 4% somewhere in there. And I think that um, the disinflation, I think six months from now, it'll look like disinflation is stalled out. Uh, here are my two final questions. You have been thinking a recession was likely. Do you think it's still likely to happen, number one? And number two, final question will be, and then we'll leave. Uh, what At what point during the year will the Fed go quiet prior to a presidential election? <laughs> um, yeah, so they're not going to do it the meeting before the vote. Um, probably not two meetings before the vote. So, so so July would be the last time you might. July's the last chance. Yeah, July's yes. the last chance for the Fed. Okay. Yeah. And what about odds of a recession? You so I, it was likely, didn't you? I I did. I thought yes. that I thought that they wouldn't be able to get it down to two without it. Yeah. But in some sense, that was a that was a um, a contingent probability, but you know, a contingent projection. It uh, it doesn't look like they're getting it down to two. Um. I mean, the strength in the economy is, is suggests that recession risks have receded. But on the other hand, that strength is in some sense a measure of um, that they haven't done as much as they need to to reduce spending growth. Recession was an acceptable consequence early on in all of the Fed's commentary in order to quell inflation and tame it. Uh, have they been able to do this without a recession? Will we still see one? I guess is really my question. Will we see yeah, one? I, you know, um, I think there's less of a chance of it, but I still think there is a chance. And it, it's going to depend on how they play their hand. I mean, if they're happy, if they're willing to countenance three and a half percent inflation for a year or two or more, they can go by without a recession for for quite a while. That doesn't I, feel I, like an awful mistake when I hear you say that. I, I'm thinking, okay, three to three and a half percent, they countenance that, and then we kind of squeak through, slide by, and we don't have a recession. I, why don't I want to see that? That's what they said in 67. <laughs> and it didn't turn out so well. It did not turn out so well. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, this is why we talk to Lacker. He's just so damn <laughs> smart, and he has it, and, and he's thoughtful about it. Um, 
Jeff Lacker, thank you so much for being with us on the Farcast. Damn, do I learn a lot when I get to talk to you. And ladies and gentlemen, can you tell how much fun I have with him and how much I like this guy? I mean, that's as much fun as anything. Thanks for being with us on the Farcast, everybody. We'll be back again next week as we cover Wall Street, Washington, and the world. Harry Jennings and our our producer, all of us at Farm Miller in Washington, thank you. Thanks. We're adding thousands of listeners. It's awesome. Please continue to share us on your social media. We'll be back next week with another Farcast. I'm Michael Farr. That's a wrap for this episode of the Farcast. Thanks for listening, and a special thanks to all of the new listeners joining us for the first time here on Season 7. We hope you enjoyed the show this week, and every week, as much as we enjoy making it for you. Michael Farr and Dr. Lacker's conversation was edited for time, and we have published the entire unedited conversation with more insight into Israel, the interaction of geopolitics to economics, and the dangers of inflation. You can listen to the full conversation as a standalone special episode of the podcast, available now on all major podcast platforms. Thanks to our guests this week, Jim Labenthal, Dan Mahaffey, and special guest, Dr. Jeffrey Lacker. As we are in earnings season, I want to reiterate that anytime we or any of our guests mention a specific company, please be aware that it is not a recommendation to buy or sell. Review with your financial advisor before you make any investment decision. And as always, if we can be of assistance at Bar Miller in Washington, please reach out to me at hjennings at barmiller.com. We are here to help, and I'm happy to arrange for any of our listeners an appointment with one of our financial professionals to review your portfolio your needs, and your goals. And, depending on his schedule, I may even be able to have Michael review your portfolio personally. The Farcast is produced by Michael Farr and Harry Jennings and comes to you weekly on all major podcast platforms, including Google, Spotify, TuneIn, and Apple Podcasts. We love reading all of your notes and try to reply to as many as we can. You can reach us at hjennings at farmiller.com. Let us know any questions you have about past episodes or questions you'd like us to answer in upcoming shows. Take care, stay safe, and stay healthy. We'll be back with you next week on The Farcast. Wall Street, Washington, and the world. Farm Miller in Washington is a group comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors, LLC, and SEC-registered investment advisors. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA, and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. All information referenced herein is from sources believed to be reliable. Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors, LLC have not verified the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors LLC and any other affiliates make no representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for statements or errors or omissions or results obtained from the use of this information. Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors LLC and any of its affiliates assume no liability for any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to the information. This podcast and the materials contained herein were created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the authors and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates. 
Bar Miller & Washington and Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented in any way to any entity as tax or legal advice. Clients are urged to consult their tax and or legal advisors for related questions.